day. I thank you for your son's sacrifices, for the message that he brought to us, and the message that he continues to bring to our hearts today. And I ask, Father, that you would stir our hearts with that message. Whatever that message is that you want us to know and hear today, prick us alive to it. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our brother. Amen. Uh, one of the things that um, we see with Christ is that um, he revolutionized the sense of family. And I want to track that. I've, I've hit it some uh, over a period of time in other studies uh, in this uh, Sunday morning chapel study. But I want us to start in Matthew 10 uh, at uh, the call that he brings to us. Uh, and it was a radical call. Hi. I'm glad you all are here. And Becky's coming even later than you, so <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, we, it, was, it was helpful. Now I have the balance. This is what I'm needing. <laughs> yeah, I, I had this funny feeling that I was just right-brained over here. You know? <laughs> uh, we're looking at the radical nature um, of Christ's call on our life, and particularly as it went to family. He redefined family. And uh, we're starting in uh, Matthew 10, verse 37 through uh, 39. He that loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves the son um, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and falls after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses life for my, my sake shall find it. Uh, this is the milder version of, of the statements that he has made about this loyalty uh, that he requires um, of, of our hearts to him. And what he's saying there is nothing can stand between you and me not family. And I remember when I first got to uh, wrestling with this because I had come from such a good family uh, system and such a positive family experience, I thought, well, how do I do that? I feel so disloyal uh, to them. And, and he's asking me to love them less, and I, I don't know what to do with that. Well, it turns out that that's not the case at all. That when we shift our allegiance more to Christ than to anything else, more to Christ than family, parents, spouse, children, then what that does is it frees you and me up to love them more because we love them with his love. We don't love them with the same kind of limitations our human love brings to the family table. When I shift my allegiance 
and rivet it more fully into the Lordship of Jesus Christ than I do into my family. Um, it allows me the possibility of taking off the old flawed tapes from my family system, my family of origin. It allows for me to begin to replace, even in good family systems, there are blemishes and flaws to the tapes they give us. There are distortions of how they see God or others that get kind of, they bleed into the fabric of, of uh, the family and they bleed into the fabric of the children. And then as children moving into adults, uh, we carry that with us until we come to this place of transferring our allegiance more to God through Christ than we do to them. That allegiance can be either negative or positive, uh, but still an allegiance. You, you say, well, boy, I really had a really bad family of origin, and I'm, that's not a problem for me. Well, if I have a negative, a very strong negative with my family of origin, that is an adhesive. That is an element or an agent which bonds me to them in a negative way. I, I tell people uh, the most powerful image I carry within myself of what I uh, want to be or what I don't want to be. If the image I carry within myself, uh, the strongest image I have is what I don't want to be. I don't want to be like mom or dad. <laughs> then that image will eventually draw me right back to it. And so when I'm in my 30s or 40s, I'll say, I cannot believe I just did that. I cannot believe I sounded just like my mom or my dad. I said I would never do that. The strongest image I carry within myself is that which will draw me. That's why it's vitally important that you and I shift our allegiance because we want the image of Christ to draw us. But if my strongest image is a negative image of what I don't want to be, of what I don't want to be, that will eventually draw me back to it. So this this statement here in uh, Matthew 10 of loving him more than we love our family seems a radical thing, and it is, but it sets you and me free to love more fully. It sets you and me free to be revolutionizing instruments in our family system, to be able to forgive and to love and for us to be refashioned in the image of a new family. I cannot put on my Heavenly Father's tapes, his ways of instruction and his ways of guidance and his ways of doing thing, things if I do not first take off my earthly father's tapes. I have to take off the old before I can put on the new. Now. Going from that, Jesus Christ, as you, uh, as you know and as you've heard me say, he never asks us to do something he has not already done. And some of this will be a little bit review-like for uh, some of you because um, I have covered some of these in bits and pieces, uh, these scriptures that I want us to go into. But I want to pull them together in uh, a somewhat different way today. Because Christ traveled this same path of making the shift in, I believe it was Luke uh, 3, 
where, uh, and I, we mentioned this, I believe, last time, where his, his um, parents had left to go home from one of the, ve- the feasts, and he was 12, and he stayed in the temple to discuss the business of his heavenly father. When the parents came back to get him, they said, why did you stay? We're, we, didn't, we were scared to death. And he said, do you not know that I must be about my father's business, my heavenly father's business? That was the uh, line of demarcation between him and his earthly family. That is when he came to the point of realizing who his father really was. His heavenly father was then beginning to take over his walk and his life. So then you look, um, uh, turn to Luke, to Luke 4. Uh, this is where Christ has come out of the wilderness experience. And uh, in um, verse 20, he has, uh, up until verse 20 of Luke 4, he has come out of the wilderness experience, made his way uh, two or three days' journey uh, up to uh, Nazareth goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, probably looking gaunt, probably not looking himself. You can imagine that when his mother, you can kind of imagine the, the, the stress that his mother must have been under because he had disappeared in the wilderness and no one had seen him for 40 days. And though she had pondered those things in her heart when she was told of uh, her conception of this divine child, I'm sure Mary didn't have all of it put together. And so it had to be a very nerve-wracking time thinking, did I hear right? Did I understand right? What has happened to him? He is in that Judean wilderness where there is no food or water, and he's been there for at least 40 days. And then the word begins to trickle back up to Nazareth that he's been seen. That, that he's, been, he's, he's been lost or coming out of a wilderness that everyone thought he was lost in. And, and he, he, he looks pretty uh, haggard and pretty emaciated, Mom, but, you know, he's alive. You can imagine that some of the rumors in the word began to trickle back to to Mary and how anxious and excited she must have been to see her son. His beard had not been cut, trimmed or anything in 40 days. He must have been a mess and also emaciated looking. But he made his way back. And where did he go? He may have gone to his mom's, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't give us that information. And in verse 16, he came, it came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. That was his custom. That was what he had grown up with. 
it says, as was his custom. And, and, and in fact, he, he probably didn't make that journey in, in three days. It was probably much longer than that because he went and pre, uh, preached and, and taught in the synagogues on his way. And great crowds of people were milling around him because he was doing miracles as he went. So you, you can get the sense of the anxiety that Mary must have had, the anxiousness to see him. And as was his custom, as she had brought him up, he went into the synagogue. Now, maybe he had gone home and gotten washed up and cleaned up, probably. But the first public appearance in his hometown after this ordeal, this being lost and everybody wondering where he was and if Mary's son was dead, I was to come to the synagogue. And he reads this piece of scripture from Isaiah, which prophesized him. And he gets it. He knows that this is prophecy of him. And he closed the book, verse 20, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And basically he said, this scripture is fulfilled right now in your hearing. What he was saying is, I am him. And this was Mary's son. This was the son of Joseph the carpenter. And he doesn't look the same as he's looked. He looks sort of wild and gaunt. And he has come out of this ordeal claiming to be the son of God. And... Uh, in 21, he says, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears, and all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Because he probably wasn't that recognizable to them. They're thinking, okay, this is, this is Joseph's son, isn't it? And it doesn't look like him because he doesn't look the same, but I, this is Joseph's son. And he is saying he is the son of God? And Jesus said unto them, You will surely say to me, this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he's now claiming to be a prophet. And I tell you a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and when famine was throughout all the land, and unto none of them was Elijah sent, except to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Now, he was sent to someone who was not of the Jewish line. That's what he's saying here. And many lepers were in Israel. And many widows were in Israel. But God didn't send Elijah to the Jews. He sent Elijah to a Gentile woman. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of a... Uh, Isaiah the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. <laughs> he is getting in their face here. He is saying God is sending, is going to be sending the prophet, the Messiah, to other than the Jews, in a sense. Now, he's coming to them, but then God is, begin, is going to be moving out from them if they don't change. And all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Everyone was, not just the leaders. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill 
whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. In other words, the first public appearance he makes in Nazareth, his hometown, where his mother and brothers live, he, they tried to kill him because of the blasphemy that, uh, that's loosely used, because of the way in which he was essentially implying he was the son of God, and, he was, uh, and God was going to be going to the Syrians and to elsewhere if they didn't change. But he, passing through their midst, went on his way, and he came to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and taught, there, taught them on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> now, when word got back to Mary, if she wasn't in the synagogue then, and she may have been in the synagogue, but my guess is she wasn't, because I think they might have shown some restraint had she and the brothers been in the synagogue. But she had to, if she was in the synagogue, she and her brothers had to have been mortified. And if she wasn't, they were probably mortified, just in a different way. So, <coughs> in chapter 5, right on over here, he then tells the disciples to launch out into the deep. In other words, he's, they're not disciples yet, but he's getting ready to call them. And so he calls the disciples uh, to him and says, follow me, in chapter 5. Okay, that's the setting. Turn over to Mark 3, and we'll pick up that setting. In Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went forth straightway and took counsel with the Herodians, which was a political sect, against him in how they might kill him. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude uh, from Galilee followed him. And... Um, he spoke, verse 9, to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many and cast out unclean spirits. And then in verse 13, he goes up to the mountain and he calls unto him his disciples and he chooses the 12 apostles. So this is the setting. He's choosing the 12 apostles. Similar setting to what we just left in Luke. Now look what happens. Uh, after he, uh, the, the apostles are named in verses 17 through 19, in verse 20 of chapter 3 of Mark, and the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now what word does your version use for friends? Family. Family. It doesn't mean mother. It, it, it means extended family. It, it could mean brothers or uncles. But family came to get Jesus because they thought he had lost his mind. Is it any wonder they thought that, by the way? given their frame of reference for who they knew him to be. He is not the son of God. Dad is his father. Joseph is his father, and he is claiming to be the son of God. And the church, our church leaders tried to kill him. They were mortified. 
They came to get him out of public view because they thought he had lost his mind. Yes. That is such a wonderful point, Patty. Thank you for that. Uh, that, the, that just after that, this demon said, I know who you are, you are the Son of God. The demon knew, but the family didn't. And, and the church didn't. And that's why he said a prophet is without honor in his own land. And he went to Capernaum. And Capernaum is the site of tremendous revival. Tremendous spiritual awakening. Uh, uh, occurred in Capernaum always. Capernaum was this wonderful place of spiritual reception of Christ. Uh, and and the, they have unearthed a synagogue in uh, Capernaum that uh, the floor of which, uh, the, the floor of the synagogue, that uh, was probably the synagogue that Christ uh, taught in. Uh, they, they have finally excavated down to that that era. So anyway, just on over, turn on over to, oh, you're still in chapter 3. Oh, well, no, don't, don't turn over. Look, look what continues to happen here. This multitude is here. Um, his family, in verse 21, uh, says he is beside himself. And next verse, the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said he has the devil. He has Beelzebub. And, and by the prince of the devils, he casts out devils. He's not just lost his mind. He's now demon-possessed. And this is the church leaders from Jerusalem, from the temple. They've been summonsed. They have walked on up here uh, to Nazareth, many miles to the north. And this is where he calls on them, Jesus says, and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, the house cannot stand. If Satan rises up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. Verse 29, he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, shall, ne shall uh, never have forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So he was accusing them of actually blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by accusing him of being of Satan. There came then, so the uncles, we assume uncles. I mean, that's an assumption. It could be cousins, but it's extended family. The uncles went back because Jesus um, evidently wouldn't go with him. And so now we see, in the context of the multitude here, that his brothers and his mother have now come. So these uncles were coming at the behest of his core family. And now Mary and his three or four brothers, four brothers, are now standing at the door. And they sent to him, 
and asked if they could, uh, verse 22, the multitude was about Jesus, and they said unto him, Behold, your mother and your brother are without, and they seek to talk with you. They're outside, standing at the door, seeking to talk with you. And Jesus answered and said, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around about them, which said, uh, uh, about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. And some of those that he looked upon were the disciples whom he just called. Some of those that he looked upon were those that he had just healed. And they wanted to be with him. And his family wanted to take him and isolate him and get him out of public view and help him, maybe. In the moment that he began to speak the harsh words to the children of Israel and the synagogue, he was staking out a new family system. And the basis of this new family is not bloodline, but spirit line. The basis of this new family is his father, his heavenly father. And those who seek to do the will of his heavenly father are his family. Now we see in John 19 when Christ hung on the cross. Uh, turn there for just a moment. John 19. Verse uh, 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, well, no, I'll start with 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by him whom he loved, which is John, he said unto him, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. There he was declaring his blood mother to be his true mother, his spirit mother. There he was declaring that she, she, she was in that family line because she sought to do the will of him that had sent Jesus. But he was also declaring that none of his brothers were yet in that line. Because it was his disciple John that he said, uh, she is your mother. Mother, this is your son. And so she went to live with him. Not her four other sons. How do I know their four other sons? Turn to... Um, I think it's Mark 13. Turn over to Mark 13. Oh, that's not. I wonder if it's Matthew 13 and I just miswrote it. This is cha it's it's um, verse 55. 
Let me go over to Matthew. I don't know. Matthew 13 doesn't make sense. So I have somehow miswritten uh, this because 13 is the parable chapter. No, it is. It is, it is Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 55. And, um, and here, here's another one of those, you know, verse, verse 53, it came to pass that when Jesus was finished with his parables, he departed. And when he had come into his own country, he taught in their synagogues and so much as they were astonished and said, whence is this wisdom come and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joses, Simon and Judas, had four brothers. He commit, committed the keeping of his mother from the cross to none of them. Now, later we know that James came to believe on him, and he wrote the book of James in the Bible. But we see in John 7, turn over to that, um, we see something going over, on in John 7. And as a lead into that, Remember the many times that we have looked at uh, Luke 9 where Christ had these people come and say, I will follow you, uh, follow you, but first let me go and do. First let me go bury the dead. First let me go you know, take care of my family. First. And in one of those places of uh, those three encounters in Luke 9, 55, 56, and 57, he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests but I have no place to lay my head. And you want to follow me? What's the implication? Make sure you count the cost before you do that. And the question is, okay, why did he have no place to lay his head? Because in the Jewish culture, he should have been quite free to stay at his mother's house, particularly since she was evidently widowed. And uh, he would have been the oldest son, and it would have been natural for him to be sort of taking care of her. Why, did that, why was that not available to him? Why did he not take advantage of that? Uh, John 7 gives us some implications uh, of this. And um, we'll start with verse 1 of John 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk, King James says, in jury, jury. In other words, he wouldn't walk where the Jews' center was, which was Jerusalem. Because the Jews sought to kill him. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said unto him, depart from here and go into Judea. Go to Jerusalem, is what they're saying, that your disciples also may see the works that you do. And there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For neither did his brothers believe in him. Now, what a strange conversation they just had with Jesus. They didn't believe in him. And they were saying, why don't you go down to Judea and show yourself. Your disciples need to see your big, your, your big works here. Show yourself not just to them, but 
to the world, to the Jewish world, to J Jerusalem. Show yourself. They didn't believe on him, but they were telling him to go right into the lion's den, right into the place where the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why would his brothers do that? What was that about? I think it was about one of two things. Probably both. <laughs> I think, at the least, they were mortified over him. They still thought that he had lost his mind, that he was crazy, and they wanted him out of their hometown. They wanted him out of the Galilean region. They were sick of probably having people ask about their brother and maybe wag their heads, as the, the, the saying goes, and, and, and humiliating them and embarrassing them. He was by the questions and the responses of people that he had grown up with, that they had grown up with, that thought something was crazy here with their, their family member. And they wanted him out. That's the best case scenario. And they're saying, put up or shut up. Go down there and show yourself if you are who you say you are so that all of this nonsense will be taken care of. And the second possibility is that they were pretty much saying, go down there. Take your chances. Yeah, either put up or shut up, but if you... If you, don't, if you don't come through, then you're in enemy territory and they'll take care of you. I mean, there's an implication here that they were really wanting him not just to leave, but to go to a place where someone would really take care of the issue. There's an implication here that they were, that they were completely wanting him out of their hair. There's an implication because the Jews were seeking to kill him and they're saying, go there. And I think they were calling his bluff, so to speak, and, and saying put up or shut up. But they were doing it in, you know, you can either hold these vipers in your hand and they won't bite you or they will. So you just get into that, that, that viper pit and if you come out alive, then you're who you said you are. And if you don't, well, tough. It's almost a sense you get here. So Jesus, Jesus is, he doesn't wade into the, to the deep. He just plunges in. <laughs> and he is saying to those who would follow him, you have to make choices. And I am revolutionizing your understanding of family. So the reason I read this about his brothers wanting him to go into the region of Jerusalem where the Jews were seeking to kill him is that I believe that his presence in Nazareth, his presence more specifically in his mother's house brought such contention and such chaos and discord that instead of staying in that tension, he removed himself from it so his mother would not have to deal with that. He, 
He didn't stay in it and butt heads and, and fight the fight. He separated him out, himself out and shook the dust off his feet. And why did he do that? Because to stay there was irrelevant to his purpose. Right. It wasn't time for that level of confrontation. And that level of confrontation would have, been, would have hindered his spirit, would have taken him into these complications and conflicts that would have distracted him and detoured him from what he was supposed to be about. To what? Yes. Yes. Exactly, and, and it was about them, it was about their fear, and he wasn't intent ever upon defending himself. The only time you ever see him make any statement of clarification on the accusations that came to him was what I just read a little while ago, uh, where the, the uh, church leaders had come and accused him of being of Satan. And he wasn't defending himself, but he was stating out in a very logical, rational manner the fallacy of their, of their view. And that was important for those around them to hear. So, yes, it wasn't his time, but I think that there's, there's here as well in with that the sense that when he, when he says in Matthew 18, 15, for instance, uh, and Luke 9 and 10, but in Matthew 18, he says, if you've got a problem with somebody, go and talk to them. They won't hear you bring a, a witness back. If they won't hear you, come back a third time. After that, if they still won't hear you, let them be as pagans. Now, he's not meaning to judge. He's not saying to judge them. He's saying separate out from them. He uses the phrase in 9 and 10 of Luke, shake the dust off your feet. Don't let the friction and the chaos and the turbulence cling to you because if it clings to you it will affect your vertical relationship with your heavenly father it will carry with you into that relationship the debris of chaos and the debris of frustration and the degree the the debris of um, conflict Christ said, think not that I've come to bring peace upon the earth. I've bring, come to bring a sword to divide mother and daughter, parent and child, husband and wife. That's what he meant, is that there comes a time when we stop contending with the family issues because it is the dust that clings to us. And he had more needful things to be about. That was not his time. It was not his time to die, and it was not his time anymore to be the focal point of the conflict. He had to be about bringing peace to his followers. A sword to those who would, who would challenge that fellowship. A sword to those things in our life that will hinder our fellowship. But when we make that decision to choose him above all else, that sword 
brings peace. And he was the prince of peace, and his message was to be peace on earth. And he could not let himself be caught up in the cauldron of his own family dynamics, of his own dysfunctional family system, no matter how hard Mary tried. And, uh, you know, you talk about family conflict. His brothers did not believe him, thought he was mad. His mother had questions for a while, but came through. Concerns, let me put that. She had concerns, but came through. And they didn't even want him around. That's a dysfunctional family, what we would call a dysfunctional family. And he removed himself from that because he had his father's work to be about. Patty, were you going to say something? Yes. Yes. So it's almost like you can see him being guided by God. That's it. He told me, I'm not going. And then I suspect he must have prayed, or somehow God must have revealed to him, I do want you to go secretly. And here he is in the temple. Yes. Pretty much exposed to the public and the leaders. And the leaders did nothing. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can see him moving with God's spirit. Absolutely, and I think that's exactly what happened. He had not yet been given uh, the green light from his Heavenly Father to go to Jerusalem. He waited, and I believe he prayed about it, and the Lord did prompt him, and he did go. So what is all of this about? This is about revolutionizing family doesn't mean that we leave our family of origin, but it means that we put our focus and our allegiance more on him than on them. And that frees us up to be his brothers and sisters. Uh, let's look at... Um, uh, Romans 8 and Galatians 4. Turn to Romans 8. <clears throat> um, as you're turning to Romans 8, in John 20, when Christ met them in the gathered room after Mary had tried to grab his feet in the, in the garden area, and he said, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended. Tell my disciples that I will meet them but I am ascending to my Father. He ascends and comes back, and that evening meets them in a room. And in that room, in John 20, he breathes on them. And he says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And that harkens back to the creation moment of man, when God bent over his clay statue and breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living soul. And here Christ breathed unto them, into them, and man received, again, the image of God, those, those 12. At 
Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon all the assembled believers. And the Spirit of God made man a quickening spirit, no longer just a living soul. So in breathing his spirit into us, we are changed into a new family because he knows of our need for belonging. He knows of our need for acceptance. He knows of our need to be known and loved anyway, to be known and given grace and mercy and not judged. And those are all the tenets of the new family system that Christ was creating. And so you look here in Romans 8, verse 14 will begin. For as many as are led of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness to us with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Turn over to Galatians 4. says essentially the same thing, starting with verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, so that you may cry, Father. Then turn over to 1 Corinthians 12 as we end here. Verse 12, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts that that Spirit breathed into man brings into man. <clears throat> In verse 12 he says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And he goes on to talk about the many different ways in which the finger and the foot and the toes are used. Verse 24, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to uh, the comely part which lacked. And uh, verse 26, whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members of that body in particular. When the Spirit came into you and me, we entered into a new body. It is the universal body of Christ. 
a new family, brothers and sisters, those who seek to do the will of him that sent me. And when one hurts, we all hurt. When one celebrates, we all celebrate. It's a radical new understanding of family. And his life is a radical revelation of how we are to deal with the conflicts and the frictions and the rubs and the disjointedness that comes with family life. We are to bring peace as we can, make decisions as we must, and never lose sight of our primary allegiance, and it is to live out the life of Christ in that family. And that many of the arguments you and I get enmeshed in in family life are irrelevant. They don't matter. I mean, we may think they do, and we get mad and huff for a day or a week. But ultimately, what matters is the new family we've been called to and how we live that new family out in our old family. Where our allegiances lie and what determines what is important for us and what is irrelevant. And it has to do with our Heavenly Father and being about His business here on earth and our brother's business here in our own families. He revolutionized family. And he modeled that for us because he does not ask you and me to do what he has not already done. Let's pray. I just ask for you to, for a moment, <clears throat> bring this message into you your own heart and into your own family experiences. And what is God about here? What is, is he about here in your life, in your family, where you are? How might he be calling you out from this family but keeping you in it as well? That is the challenge to be in our world, but not of it. To be his instrument. Letting his love and his peace flow through us. Shaking off the dust of friction and conflict that the world brings to us and sometimes our own families bring to us. Father, thank you for this light and truth and for your power through which we may live this life. Thank you that we are all family here. Open our hearts to love one another as you have loved us. In Christ I pray this. Amen.